Second Thessalonians chapter 1. I was going to preach after that Michigan happened to win, how the first shall be last and the last shall be first, but decided not to. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be looking down through. We just we had our first message into this book. We have, of course, completed First Thessalonians. We're on the Second Thessalonians. And <clears throat> well, let me read these verses and we'll get going. Starting in verse number 6. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse number 6. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I ask your blessing upon the service. I pray that you be glorified and honored. I pray for your mercy and grace and your help. Lord, I pray that you would control what I say and how I say it, Lord. I pray your spirit would have free course to work in our hearts and to draw us closer to you. Please do a work. Lord, use this to challenge us and to move us truly, genuinely closer to you in our walk. So, Lord, please work here. And, Lord, if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted, Lord, I pray for that conviction and for that drawing and that even this evening they would repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that you be glorified and honored. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Of course, Paul wrote this letter fairly quick after 1 Thessalonians. He, he, obviously, we, we, don't, we don't have any uh, recording of what the report was, but we know from this epistle that the report he got back, what was taking place, that there was still some confusion over the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, and it was now presenting a few problems in the church. People were actually quitting their jobs and, and mooching off of others because Christ is going to return at any time. And, and so he had, to, he had to work through those. But also another issue that was still very present in the report was that they were still suffering and they were enduring great affliction and great trials. Remember, we looked at this church at the start of it, when we started First Thessalonians, and how this church began and how it began in trials and afflictions. How Paul was ran out of town and you know he, he went from Philip. Philippi, and after Philippi, he came on into Thessalonica. He gets run out of town there. And so anyhow, they're still suffering greatly. And so he starts off by encouraging them how, they're, how they are growing in faith and love. And we saw that was God's mark of what a, a true, strong, good church is. It's not that God looks at the attendance role of how many people are in the pews. He's looking at, are they growing in faith and are they growing in love? And now he's continuing along the lines, and he mentions how they were staying so faithful in enduring the persecution. He's going along those lines, and he knows they're suffering and yet enduring. And Paul is going to let them know by this text today, one day it is all over us, all over with. Rest or, depending on who you are, recompense are coming. That's what's going to take place. Things will be made right. This few verses I just read is really, when you read it, is one of the most sobering texts in the entire Word of God. Outside of the book of Revelation, there is no other text that shows Christ more clearly and strongly as judge of this earth. We live, certainly in a, day, in a wicked world. We are faced with different trials and 
I, I mean, really, for what America has known in the last couple of hundred years, it is, it is, it, it's getting to a level that obviously we have not known of wickedness that has, that has come up. It's not that this is unique in all of world history, but it certainly is for the last couple hundred years of what we're seeing take place. I mean, it's, it, we truly live in a day when they call evil good and good evil. It's amazing. That, that truly is the day we live in right now. We live in a day that if a man wants to dress like a woman and call himself a woman, it's normal. It's normal. I mean, don't get me wrong, you go back 100 years, our, our, our culture started putting aside distinction in dress and gender. We live in a day when it's fine to kill unborn babies. I listened to an interview this week that was just appalling. It was, on, it was a congressional hearing. It was a doctor that was being interviewed that manages an abortion clinic in St. Louis. Just one clinic in one town, and that's it, in St. Louis. She spoke without emotion, without feeling almost with a sense of arrogance, and it was astonishing. She tried to avoid a lot of the questions, but she did answer one. It was asked, how many abortions do you perform a year just in your clinic? She said, I do about 3,000 a year. That's one clinic in one city. She also mentioned she would be willing to perform one in any week of gestation. Incredible. And this is viewed literally right now by 50% of our nation as a good thing. As choice. No, we're speaking up for the choice of the human that's inside the mother. Of the baby. That's a life. Think about that. So that clinic, she's been there many years. Just in one decade, that one clinic has killed, murdered 30,000. 30,000. We live in a day of violence. We see violence more than we ever have. We, I mean, it's everywhere. Just the, the, it, it, it's astonishing. We live in a day of rampant drug abuse. Boy, is that just taking over. Boy, since the 50s and 60s, and that began to take hold. And, and, and those drugs becoming more sophisticated and changing and uh, availability as the world has gotten smaller. And you can see it controlling so many lives and ruining so many families and individuals. <clears throat> we live in a day where there's much injustice. Really, I could go on and on here. We live in a day when we live in a, a country that is changing drastically. We have seen this. We've seen the foundation of this taking place going back into the 20th century, especially in the 50s and 60s, getting established with, with a, a dramatic change in our nation turning towards humanism and secularism away from the Christian heritage that it had. Along with it has risen persecution of Christians that has not happened in the past. And we know, we know it's just going to get worse. Do you know, the Bible speaks of that. It does. In the last days, is it going to get better or is it going to get worse? In the last days, perilous times shall come. We all like to talk with excitement that we're in the last days, but you better understand, with last days comes perilous times. And so with that, the trials and, and from raising our families and, 
and and uh, uh, the the difficulties that we're going to go through. I mean, we can see what took place with different people's persecution right now with with what happened with COVID to a vaccine to mass. I mean, just crazy. But the truth is, even with all the injustice, all the different suffering, the persecutions that's taking place, the truth is. One day, all will be made right. Everything. That's true. One day, think about this, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That day will happen. Paul, in our text, is going to the believers in Thessalonica to let him know what is coming. He knows they're suffering and they're enduring. He wants to encourage them, keep on, don't stop. And so he's going to the future of what's going to take place to try and encourage them to keep on going. There's two key words in the text, recompense and rest. The truth is, judgment is coming. Christ is going to return. There is an eternal judgment that is going to take place. And there is a very different end for the believer as compared to the unbeliever. Many in this world, including many preachers, like to deny the reality of an eternal judgment that is to come. But it is coming. It doesn't matter if Billy Graham denies it or Schuler denies it or all, the, all, the, all those other men like to deny it. That's just convenient for where they stand. And I'm going to discuss that today. That's one of the things I'm going to get into a little bit is how these people today can say, well, God is a God of love. I just can't imagine a place like hell. Oh, I think we can change your thinking on that. Even, even those who do believe in hell, you, you, you won't find too many of them actually believe that I'm going there. I mean, that's for Adolf Hitler's. That, 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 that's, for, that's just for the vilest of the vile. I tried to find the most current survey I could on, on a belief in hell at any level. And here is the one that I found the most recent one done. It was done of those age 29 and younger. So I guess the, is that called the millennials? Only 21% of them believed in hell of any sort. The truth is, though, judgment is coming for the wicked and rest is coming for the believer. That's a fact. So let's look at these two. Recompense and rest. But first off, recompense. Verse number 6, Paul said this in trying to encourage the believers that are in the church of Thessalonica, seeing it is a righteous thing with God. See, by the way, if you notice, by the way, as we're going through books of the Bible, don't miss this. Understand how much it helps you understand and grasp and that you can put in your own life then. When you're reading through the Bible like in your devotions and you understand the setting of what's taking place. Of the difficulties like we talked about that these Christians right here in this church, just like you and I are going through. They've lost jobs. They've had families shun them. All this has taken place. They're enduring great persecution, especially from the Jews, from a religious aspect, from the Jews who are, who are in the community. And he says this, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. 
when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. Let me just stop there. But you get in, of course, all in the verse 9, it deals with recompense. The word simply means to repay. To repay. Paul tells them, listen, it's right for God to repay, to recompense those who have persecuted you. And not just those, as we see what he's driving at here. Because he's going to take this all the way to future judgment when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And there is no getting away with it. There are times that we see it in Scripture that God does repay quickly. That's in his sovereignty. There are times he does that, but it's not even the majority of times in the Bible. But there is a day coming where he has set aside for that. It's marked for that. It's the purpose of it. Are there times he executes judgment ahead of time? There are. I mean, when Pharaoh decided to kill all of the Jewish babies and throw them in a river and drown them, guess whose army drowned in water? Pharaoh's. When... Uh, when who was it? Darius's men all went to him, went to Daniel, trying to get him to to, to wanted to uh, deceive the king and get Daniel killed and thrown in a den of lions. Only only ones killed in a den of lions were those advisors. Right. Haman wanted to wipe out uh, the nation of Israel. The one who was killed was him and his sons. So there are times. When God actually executes a level of vengeance, and I'm going to talk about that word in a little bit. It's different than revenge. When God does choose to execute a measure of vengeance now, but for the most part, as Paul points out right here, that day is coming when the Lord returns. And all that that, all that, that encompasses. Paul lets them know God will repay And the truth is, the future punishment of the wicked is a reality. God would not warn of such a judgment if there was not one to come. And it's just and it's right. Again, our problem is, I don't want to get ahead of myself. We punish the wicked now. We do. Every single culture has something set up to punish wickedness. Why do you think, how do you think God would not? So Paul dives in as he, got, he tells them, he said, listen, that day is coming. There's going to be a day of rest. There's going to be a day of recompense. And he tells them, when is it going to take place? He says, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That's when it's going to happen. That's the day marked. That's when this is going to take place. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed. He's dealing, of course, with the second coming of the Lord. The word that Paul uses here is very interesting. When you, when you see, when he talks about the return between believers and unbelievers, it's a fascinating. He never uses the same word for each group. And, and that's on purpose, of course. All right, when, he, when he's talking with believers about the return of Christ, about the arrival of Christ, he uses a completely different word than the word that is used here when he shall be revealed. He usually uses the word uh, it's, it's a long word in Greek, and I'm not going to be able to say it right. Pasosoia, something like that. It means the arrival, the coming presence. He uses this world only for believers because we know him. We're, we wait for his arrival. We know him through scripture. We know him through our relationship that's been based from what we've learned of him. We know him. So we just wait for his arrival. But Paul doesn't use that word here, of course. 
he uses a completely different word. The same word we get the word um, uh, uh, for the same word we have a revelation. It means an unveiling, a revealing. It's the same Greek word we get the word apocalypse from. Exact same word. It's, it means a revealing. The appearing of something that was not known or it was hidden. Because he's dealing primarily here with unbelievers and what's going to take place. So what Paul is saying here, by the word that he is using, the idea of Christ coming to a world that does not know him. But in that moment, he's revealed. He's revealed. Now get, just think about this for a minute. When he was here the first time, there was nothing special about him when you looked at him that told you he was the Son of God. Would you, if you would have went to that manger right there, you would have saw a baby. That's what you would have saw. There was no halo over him like in the paintings. There wasn't. There wasn't a floating halo over his head. It wasn't there. It was a baby. If you would have passed by him when you were walking down the streets in Galilee... There is nothing about him that would have caused you to drop down knowing you just brushed shoulders with the Creator. Nothing. Had you been there when he died on that cross at Golgotha outside of Jerusalem, had you happened to walk by the road that day and looked up and saw three men dying, there would have been nothing there that told you the Son of God. Nothing. Now, of course, in his actions on earth, he did plenty that demonstrated his power. But it was hidden. But when he returns the second time, that is not going to be the case. He's not coming as a lamb. He's coming as a lion. He's not coming in, in, the, in, the, in that humbleness and meekness now. Now he's coming as judge. He will return in His glory. We're not going to turn there tonight for time's sake, but Revelation 19, we went through the book of Revelation, getting into, as well as Revelation 1, I think we could tie that in here too, into that, that incredible day of how the Bible describes it, what's going to take place when Christ returns. He will be revealed in His glory. It says, here that, it says here that the angels are with him. It says he shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. We know from, there's a verse, was it Matthew 25 or 24 when we went through Matthew? There's a verse there that says all the host of heaven. So it's very, very likely that the amount of angels with him when he returns for the second coming is every single one of them. Besides us. Think of the sight. It's an innumerable... And the, the unveiling takes place. There will not be one question in any person's mind at that moment as to who that man is. Everyone will know. The flaming fire isn't dealing with his judgment. It's not. It's dealing with him. Just how we see him described in Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 19. In other words, it's stating it's now going to be in his glory. That's how he's going to return this time. This coming will bring two things. Recompense and rest. 
It says in verse 8, he's coming to take vengeance. And flaming fire taking vengeance. Now, we know from verses like uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 19, as well as other places in Scripture, vengeance belongs unto God, not us. Vengeance belongs unto God. It's, the word itself even has within the meaning itself the word justice. When God does vengeance, it's right. It will be right, and it is right. Our vengeance, on the other hand, can be filled with passion, can be filled with sin. And again, it's more of a revenge aspect to hurt. This is the Creator in His justice exacting the, uh, the appropriate and what is right in vengeance. He is coming to judge. He is coming to punish. This event, of course, as we know at the return of Christ, when he does return, will have one judgment that takes place immediately. And that is the judgment of the nations, the sheep and the goats. That basically every single person at that judgment who is outside of Christ, who has not been converted, is cast into the lake of fire right there. Right into hell, I should say. Right there. That's what's done. So when the kingdom age begins, all who enter are only saved. That's it. Now, they're going to have kids, and that's not going to, that's not going to be that way uh, you know, very long. But when it starts, it is every single person in there is converted. But we also have the judgment, and Paul is making reference to this. Look over in Revelation chapter 20. Look, turn to the book of Revelation chapter 20. Verse 11. The judgment day. And I saw a great white throne. And him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. What people don't realize right now, with all that's taking place on this earth, and all the wickedness, and even in our own lives, it's all recorded. Nothing is missed. Nothing. There will be a day of reckoning. It's not now. Every now and then God does some reckoning now. But this is the appointed time. The sea gave of the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. A very real judgment. He goes on in our text to tell us who is affected. He told us when it was coming. But then he tells us who. Those who know not God and have not obeyed the gospel. Everyone apart from Christ. You have those arguments that people like to make. We've all probably had to answer those questions with unbelievers as we're witnessing or, or just in discussion with them even. Well, what about the per person in deepest, darkest Africa who never had the opportunity to hear? Is he going to hell? Yes. But there was opportunity. There was. They might not have heard the gospel as I heard it. I understand that. But there was opportunity. Here's some, certain things we know about God that cannot change. Remember, He's not us with a sinful nature. He is God, and He is just, He is perfect, He is good. 
And we know from Romans chapter 1 that how exactly that is going to work. And I don't care who it is, what part of the world they're sitting in. If they will respond to the light that is given, God will give more light. To every single person who's ever been born. And God makes clear, it, that doesn't mean that every single person will necessarily hear the words, but every single person will have that conviction on their heart when maybe they just look at the stars at night. And in that moment, how they choose to respond, whether it's towards the darkness of their heart, or no, I want to know Him. You know what God will do? Send more light. Every time. Ask the Ethiopian eunuch how that works out. He will. But as it says, those that know not God and those, of course, apart from the gospel, those who chose to disobey the gospel, not to believe, in other words, that's who's going to be affected. Some say, well, you know, this just really isn't fair. Many don't see hell as fair. You know, reading this week and studying different ones, the, the truth is this. This world is so used to mercy and grace from God, they don't even understand true justice. I want to quote from one person who was talking about that fact, and and I thought, man, he's just nailing this. One commentator. The truth is the world is so used to mercy and God's patience, it abuses it. And because that sin does not have an immediate consequence, people get used to mercy. In fact, they get so used to mercy that they think divine justice is unfair. You think about it. Think about anything in life. And then we'll come back to the idea of God's mercy on this earth. You can get used to anything. And it loses how special and how important it is in your life. That's true. It becomes commonplace. One of the biggest problems we have in Christian homes is what? The Bible becomes commonplace. It loses how special. I remember when I was convicted, and, and don't get me wrong, I wasn't even, I, I honestly, I'm not saying that from arrogance. I, I don't believe the Bible's all commonplace in my life. But when I was at a meeting at uh, uh, Windsor Hills, wherever the corns are, at their church here in Oklahoma, and I was a youth pastor, took the youth there for a youth conference. And they had that missionary there speaking. It was right after the wall went down in the former Soviet Union. And they brought Bibles in. And listening to him describe the people weeping, as they had a Bible. And I knew, still in my own life, it's lost how special it needs to be. So we know that's true in, that's true in our relationships in, in many ways. You can take your job for granted. You lose how special that is until you lose it. Then you're like, ah. Oh. Now you remember everything good about it. That's true. But there's nothing more sad or scary than the fact that this world is, is misunderstanding what true justice looks like because of being too used to God's mercy. That's the truth. This world has seen so much of God's goodness, they think justice is unfair when they hear it. You mix that with the reality of this, of how we tend to minimize our sin and at the same time minimize God's holiness. But when you begin to peel those, that cover off and those, those false presuppositions, presuppositions off, you begin to realize 
No, there is divine judgment. You begin to see how much God actually hates sin. It has to be dealt with. I mean, we talk of the brutality of the cross and all that took place. That event alone should show you how much God hates sin. But we've gotten so used to God's grace and His mercy, we think justice is unfair when it comes to God. But it isn't. And the fact that you choose not to believe it, yet this, this God who is holy, who is just, and who is love, has done everything, everything through His grace and His mercy to ensure, when He didn't even have to, that He could put us in the group that, that receives rest and not the recompense. Because this judgment is real. Hell is real. As he says in verse 9, this is what he will do now. Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. Flip over. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction. Boy, and here's two things that I never really got into until, until this week in describing hell. Everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Let's talk about those. He tells us what He's going to do when He comes. He's letting them know this is what's going to happen to Him. He is going to render vengeance. It's going to involve everlasting punishment and it will be horrible. He describes it as everlasting destruction. Now, let, let's talk about this. I don't know if... Obviously, I'm getting a lot of debates when I'm witnessing whether it's Jehovah Witnesses, essays, you name it. But this is a... This verse right here happens to be a verse that many of the cults like to use to teach a doctrine called annihilation. All right? They use the term everlasting destruction. And so they'll grab you... They'll, they'll point to a Bible in your verse, ignoring all the others, of course, and, and come in here and say it's an everlasting destruction. And so they teach from that annihilation, or in other words, you simply cease to exist if you're apart from Christ. That is not what the word destruction there means at all. If they come by your house, go grab a concordance and look up the meaning of the word. It has nothing to do with an end of existence. It means ruined. Ruined. Two words it means, actually. Ruined and punishment. That's what it means. Ruined and punishment. It never meant an end of existence. It's a ruined life or a ruined soul. The soul that is now ruined as far as it's worth. It will never, ever, ever be what it was supposed to be. Ever. It will be an everlasting destruction. Ruined for an eternity. Punished for an eternity. That's what the word means. And he mentions how it lasts forever. That's eternal. Obviously, it can't mean soul sleep. It can't mean annihilation just with the word forever. Because whatever this is, it's forever. There is no end to it. There is no stopping it. It's forever. That, that word here that is used is used 75 times in the New Testament. It always means eternal. Now, as he goes on to describe two horrors of hell, when they are judged in this eternal destruction, 
The first one he mentions is this. It's apart from the presence of God. I remember when I was reading, usually I sit down and when I go to prepare a sermon, the first thing is just reading the text several times. Just, that's it. I print it out separately, read the Bible, and then I actually print it out on just on, I use a Word document, copy and paste it on there and print it out. And then just read it there. I'll do that after I read it in here so I can make some notes. You know, I'm, maybe some words I don't understand. I'm going to need to look this one, this one, this one's are key words, just different things like that to start making notes on. And I was, as I was just doing the reading, that thought grabbed me about hell. From the presence of the Lord. Hell is apart from the presence of God. Think about that. Imagine a place where there is no evidence, there is no presence whatsoever of the Lord. I don't think we can comprehend it. You see, we see God's presence throughout all of creation. This is, this is His world and His universe that He created. We see His mercy and His grace, His hand. I mean, all that we experience in hell, that's gone. It's not just the flames. We see His goodness, His mercy, we see His hand. All that will be gone. To quote one commentator, that no human being ever, ever living in the world has lived in such a place because God is in this world. It's, it's in Him we live and move and have our being. His providence is all around us. We enjoy His beauty and His provision, including, of course, unbelievers. He's, this isn't just talking about those who are saved. The world every day has that sun come up on them. They feel the warmth. They can enjoy the relationships that have been given. All that there is to experience from the Creator because of His presence. That will be gone. You want to talk about feeling alone? A place where one is alone and there is nothing of God there. No life, no joy, no peace, no satisfaction, no love, no pleasure. That's why it's outer darkness. It's not only apart from God's presence. It's apart from the glory of His power. The way God has hell. It's, it's as if it's truly God shunning something. His back turned. Nothing to do with it. Nothing. No help. Nothing. He won't hear a cry for mercy. He won't hear a plea for a, a thing of water. Nothing. It is apart from the glory of His power. There will be no evidence, the slightest evidence of His glory or His power anywhere. Not in sight, not in emotion, nothing. And we enjoy that right now. This whole world does more than it realizes. But when this vengeance takes place and an everlasting destruction is pronounced and that soul is now ruined to be punished, 
it is forever departed from the presence of the Lord in any way or fashion and from the glory of his power. It's done. I'm going to just run through these. I was going to, I was going to stop. I'm going to run through these a little bit quickly here. Different descriptions of hell in the Bible. Place of darkness, gnashing of teeth, weeping, unquenchable fire, furnace of fire, wailing, everlasting fire, bottomless pit. And lastly, to lead into my next point, no rest. Revelation 14, 11. There's no break. He tells them, listen, that day's coming. There's coming a day of recompense. For the believer, though, the end is very, very different. It is a day of rest. Look at back in our text in verse 7 and 10. He says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. And then he puts that in context of the Lord's return. Jump down to verse 10. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed. And when he was there, they heard the gospel and believed in that day. Rest is coming. For the believer, because of God's grace, not because of who we are, because of His grace and us responding to the gospel, we don't have recompense, we have rest. And he's tell, understand, understand how this can help us right now in this wicked world we live in. We live in a world, and boy, your mind will get so caught up with everything that's taking place. Paul was afraid that's what was going to happen to them. He's saying, no, 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 listen, understand what is coming for you. The word rest here, it means a loosening of the tension, relaxation. It, it, it can be referred to on strings on an instrument and releasing the tension that's on the strings on an instrument. It's rest from the persecution. It's rest from the battle of the flesh. It's rest from the lust of the eyes. It's rest from the corruption of our mind. It's rest from uh, the sinful world. It's rest from the wicked that's abounding all around us. It is a rest from the suffering. It's an arrest from the body that's death. On and on. All that's over with and done. I mean, think of what Christ said in John chapter 14. And the reason why he, he said it when he said it. Right before he's taken from them. As he's trying to encourage them, think on the future. In my father's house are many mansions. I go to a prayer place for you. Tell you, if I go, I will come again. For the believer, it's rest. He knows at that moment, as, he, as he's really making reference to there in verse number 10, their bodies are going to be changed. I mean, as it tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him. When he shall appear, I, I used to quote it, I don't know, I messed it. But the moment we see him, we're changed. We're changed. He's in this body, everything you're going through, one day it's all over with. It's all over with. It's done. Now, I want to finish with this. This is important. First Peter. Look how Peter's going to describe our rest. This helps us now. We can get, go through so many struggles here and lose sight so easily 
of the very thing that can still supply us joy. And First mm. Peter chapter one. I'll look at a couple of verses here, then we'll be done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Two, this is what is begotten us again unto, this lively hope we have. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. Here, let's do this something I haven't done before. We're going to do it right now. We're going to read this verse responsibly together. Verse number four. This is, our, this is the lively hope we have because of salvation. Let's begin. Verse number four. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. And then we're kept by the power of God. Now, I'm not done. We're going to go to another verse here later on in that chapter. Now, listen to me. There are times, and we don't even realize it, that this world, whether it's our country or whatever, becomes an idol to you. It becomes your idol. You don't even know it. It's not the world to come. It's not the hope that we have. And boy, here's the evidence of it. When your hope is actually in the world, Because it's serving as your idol. You're miserable. Miserable. Please understand this. The very moment you got saved. You became a pilgrim. You can get so down and out, everything that takes place in different circumstances in life. Take your eyes off of the corruptible world, which is doing exactly what God said would happen. And put your mind on an inheritance incorruptible. That was an on purpose breath. That itself provides rest. We see the nonsense of our world like I started off in my introduction. But the day is coming. Do you understand what we have? Listen, I served in the United States Air Force for nine years. There is not another country on the planet that I am so glad God allowed me the privilege of being an American. I believe it's the greatest country the world has ever known, apart from when Israel was right. Truly, my home is here with the Lord. My hope is not in what happens to America. It's not. I've read the Bible. I've read it since I've been a teenager. I've known since then. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. But what I have is an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, 
and that fadeth not away. Reserved. It's, it's set. It's mine. In heaven for you. Here's our problem. Go to verse 13. Same text. Here's what we don't do. This will help. Listen, don't miss this. This can be such a help. Please don't miss this. Verse 13. Wherefore, because of all that he's been talking about, what we have. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Look where the battle is. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's putting the same point that Paul did in a different way right here is what he's doing. For the rest. He is saying, keep your stinking eyes off of the world. And put them on what God has already promised you. To do that, you have to gird up the loins of your mind. Now, he's using a metaphor here. As you know, when they would travel, the men had on what they would call the trousers were underneath. And we went through all this. And they, they would have a, a, a garment over top. But when they went to battle, they had to travel fast. They would have to gird up their loins. They'd have to take that garment and they would cinch it off and tie it at that point. It would assist for, they did in a lot of different, that's what he's referring to. So he uses that metaphor in relation to our mind. Basically saying is this, use some discipline of mind. Gird up your mind. Control. Don't focus. Don't allow your hope to be in this world. Listen, if, if your hope is going to be, listen, I know God's going to allow this world to change. That's what's going to happen. You are going to be miserable. That's not going to happen. It's not. I mean, Grant, God could allow one great revival to come through, something like that. I, I'm not questioning that, but we do know this. In the last days before Christ comes, it gets worse. That's what it does. And then he returns. If you look at the world as a whole, we are setting up for that. Gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, and he, as, he, as, as it's clear in this verse, what he says in verse 13, put your hope on God, not on the world. Let me quote a commentator on this. I like his words. It was pretty good. He said, how strange is it that Christians live so differently than this? That they have so little interest in future glory. Narcissistic, self-centered, materialistic, shallow Christianity with its low view of God, its meager understanding of the glories of Christ, its shallow experiences of real worship, genuine prayer, and true holiness shows very little interest in the glory to come. This is the glory that the Lord has promised you. And it, it goes on from there, but I'll stop there with the quote. As, he, as Peter was saying here, we have amazing what is reserved for us now. You know what? And the only time that I'm going to need to fret and despair and say it's over with and quit is if, it's impossible, if God loses the election. Okay? If God gets voted out of heaven, we're in trouble. 
you laugh at that because you know that's impossible. It is. So the sovereign king is in complete control. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. With heads bowed and eyes closed.